You're listening to the Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures from multifamily properties, mobile homes to Bitcoin mining. Do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. You're listening to Alternative Investor Mastermind, where we do a deep dive on alternative investment opportunities and the lifestyle it can create. Join Jack Krupe as he presents actionable tips and tricks in doing passive real estate away from mainstream strategies. Go beyond the usual fix and flips and try less explored yet rewarding investing ventures from multifamily properties, mobile homes to cryptocurrencies. Do not miss this opportunity to escape traditional assets and finally create wealth without Wall Street. Now your host, Jack. Welcome to another episode of the Alternative Investor Mastermind. Got a great guest today, uh, Stuart Heath of Harvard Grace Capital. Stuart and I are in a mastermind group together and have got to spend some time together at various conferences. Stuart is a 35-year professional, runs a company called Harvard Grace Capital, does fractional uh, C-level engagements for businesses. Stuart's also been a real estate investor for more than 20 years with experience in commercial, multifamily development, construction management, and investing. Stuart's uh, learned a lot of lessons uh, from 2008, which you only know it if you've lived through it. Could have a great episode here. So Stuart, thanks and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate you having me. It's quite the honor. Given where we are in the world economy here, I think I'd like to kind of start uh, talking about how we think this compares to 2008. Maybe if you could just kind of share a little bit of what your experience uh, was with 2008, how you think this compared over the last six months or so? It's actually a topic that associates uh, talk about quite a bit. I don't think this has this looks anything like 2008, 2009. It's hardly comparable at all. That was 2008. It was a genuine financial crisis that occurred from market conditions of easy credit and a bunch of people, including yours truly, getting way too much credit that was offered by banks. And and then there was a slowdown. Warren Buffett's the one that said, now we're going to see who's swimming with their trunks all. Because when the tide went out, everything was flowing back in 2008 because there was lots of credit. And all you needed to do was go get another loan. Asset prices were going up. You just went and refinanced the deal you just bought last year, get more money to go buy the next deal. And then it just stopped. Wiser heads were less foolish. I was doing everything 100% finance, and banks were all game for it. That's not really the case here. I would describe our current situation as an artificial economic slowdown. There was going to be an economic slowdown after all the money that flowed into the economy from the pandemic. You couldn't go on vacation. What did people do? They spent money on their houses. They sold their house. They bought a bigger house. They bought cars. They did all kinds of stuff other than travel, and a lot of that with free government money, there was going to be a slowdown. You pulled a lot of demand forward. We knew things were going to slow down. What's really happening here is the cost of energy. The current administration you know, put massive restrictions on our ability to, to generate our own oil and petroleum here in the United States, and that shot up fuel prices. The cost of fuel and energy is built into every product and service, especially food, anything that has to be delivered. I call it artificial. 
it's not artificial to us who are paying four fifty a gallon at the pump, but to me, it's very reversible by the same stroke of the pen from which this was somewhat called. Now we have genuine slowdown in the economy because of multiple things. There's no more new free government money. The price of goods is going up. People have finite resources. We really hadn't seen much happening in the job market, but now we're starting to see that too. I think the world was kind of shaken this week with Walmart's earnings release saying, you know, hey, look, we didn't have such a great quarter. And and our customers, you know, Walmart's customers are our everyday folks. They are being significantly impacted. Is it just about in every business? They're in groceries, they're in consumer products, they're in fuel. They're actually a one of the largest fuel distributors in the country. Artificial uh, triggers are causing a real recession. And I think they may be hard pressed to say it's a recession, but Friday, we should find out if we're actually have had two quarters of declined economic activity, you know, which, which would meet the definition. This to me is nothing like 2008. Most of the people, most of the business didn't do anything to create this one. And the Fed has one tool in its arsenal. I don't know how raising interest rates is going to do anything about supply chain issues and fuel costs. I think we need policy changes without going too far down the political side. I mean, both sides do stupid things from time to time. <laughs> I, mean, I definitely agree that it's it's 100% different this time. The other key thing that, that I tend to look back to is a lot of the residential houses, people got in trouble with these option arms where the rates were locked for a year or two, then doubled in some cases, whereas the majority of people in this case locked in 30-year fixed at two and a half, three percent They're not going to be forced to sell. They're locked in at a nice low rate. Those that didn't buy now may end up renting longer because the houses are now uh, unaffordable, along with just a lack of overall supply. I'd like to think we're much more protected for, for those of us who focus on multifamily, other niche alternative classes. I think the long-term housing supply outlook is pretty rosy for the housing sector for 10 or 15 years. We got people coming up and they're going to need apartments, they're going to need houses, and we can't keep up. That's really good if you're on the investment side of housing. Tell me more about your path. How did you get started into real estate investing and you migrate into syndications? I'm a CPA. I think I became a CPA because my dad was a CPA. He was your very traditional, conservative, stoic guy. And he was a partner at Ernst & Winnie until the day he retired. And you know, it's the only job he ever had out of college was, was uh, Ernst & Winnie. It sounded good to me, but I'm just a little bit more entrepreneurial than he was. I'm still a CPA and still do CPA things from time to time. But I've always loved real estate. Very early on, I had an exposure to several clients were flipping houses before it was called flipping. They would build a spec house, and I was just fascinated to learn how they did it. Along about 2001, it's kind of an interesting story. There used to be a guy who had an infomercial on named Carlton Sheets. And I'm sitting there, it's in the middle of tax season, so I'm up at two o'clock in the morning doing tax returns. And his infomercial comes on, and I've probably seen it a hundred times, and I just started listening. It was a $199 money-back guarantee. Screw it. I'm going to do it. Started reading it, and it was actually pretty good stuff. How do you do this? It was very practical about, he would tell you how to go through the classified ads back when there were still newspapers. I started doing it, and within a few months, I did a seller finance deal on my first duplex, 2001. A month after that, I found another guy who was selling 14 duplexes, and we did a similar thing, and I was able to get 
mortgage finance on part of it, got him to take back seller financing on most of the rest of it. I put 10 grand into it. Boom, I was landlord. I had 30 rental units. Just kind of loved it. From there, partnered up with a guy in Franklin, Tennessee and started building houses. We turned some of those into rentals. And from there, still pursuing rentals, ended up buying a small block of condos in one development. Two years later, I owned the whole complex, 70 units. So we're renting them, but that one I wanted to renovate and condos were just hot. And this was 2006. We got those rented and we brought those back on the market to sell in January of 2007. And I sold 26 of them in the first weekend. That's great. I'm going to be out of this by Memorial Day. (laughs) Then the world started to change. In March of that year, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns started having issues. And I might be off a year there. That might have been 2008. I didn't sell another one of those condo units for another 12 months. We were doing marketing every weekend. The world sort of stopped. All of those 26 closed. And so the world just slowed down. And all of this was sort of cross-collateralized against everything. Long story short, in 2008, you know, that was a presidential election. That's when Countrywide Mortgage informed the world July the 27th. They couldn't close any of the loans that they had agreed to fund on July the 31st. There were strange times. Everything came crumbling down. And then ultimately, I, I was able to stay afloat for about 12 more months, just having to give everything back to the bank. Declared bankruptcy in 09 and went back and got a job never lost my passion for real estate. But the way I'd done it was stupidly. I should have brought in partners. I learned the value of equity, of actually having cushion, actually having reserves. After all of that, appraised values of everything I'd put together, and I was partners in some things with $20 million of real estate. And if I had had even 300,000 of reserves, I'd still have some of those assets. Some of them were worth hold for a long, long time. Really learn the value of reserves, which is we do now. We build in reserves because you don't know what's going to happen. When you build your empire on asset values always increasing, then you're never prepared for the day when when it crashes. Nevertheless, that's what really led me to syndication. I've had several CFO executive positions in between now, but then in 17, really came out with Harvard Grace from the consulting side. And in 2020, we formed Harvard Grace Capital, have partners there. We have closed one deal. We've got two in the works right now, which should close in October. Reserves, equity, raising capital, most of which we've raised from uh, friends, family, close-in network. Found out about Raise Masters in early 21, joined in April of 21, just open up. This is how you do it. How do you reach people? The Jobs Act and SEC 506C, I was aware of these type things. I didn't know how you'd go about and find investors. That's really helped me with what you'd said earlier. That's my story. What was your first new deal after restarting? I know I'm going through what I I went through and I also took a job for a year or two. I ended up in a non-performing mortgage space, which is an interesting pivot. But I just remember myself, just like the level of anxiety and somewhat of kind of lost my mojo, if you will, to quote Austin Powers. How was the mental game there? And what was the process to get back and do the first deal post-financial crisis? I regained my mojo. The first job I took was down in the Huntsville, Alabama area who he owns things. He develops and he leases. He'd been through something similar in a previous financial crisis. He sort of snatched me up pretty quick. We went out and I helped him structure deals. 
it was almost like going back to school because I could go out and reprove to myself that I still had the skills and the know-how with somebody else's money. Other than a couple of single family homes that we did, which I hadn't intended to, but they were owned by a lady that I had married along the way. In the middle of this, there's divorces and there was a remarriage, which is a fabulous thing, but she'd had some property. I didn't really want to get back into residential, but I know how to do this. So we did those. The first real deal we did was an office building in Spring Hill, Tennessee, which we actually closed on earlier this year. I had taken on a client. It was a not-for-profit that owned it. They owned this building. They didn't know what to do with it. I said, well, I do. I managed this building for three years, and then I finally convinced them to sell it, which we closed, like I said, in January. And a lot of people, nobody's going back to the office. There were a lot of investors who thought, you're crazy, but I'm in the South. We've kind of pretended there wasn't a pandemic for two years. Hardly anybody ever stopped going to the office. Everybody's adopted the hybrid model for sure, but a lot of people were already doing that. We bought a 100% occupied office building with some expansion capabilities. We're in the middle of that deal and it's going better than expectations. I spend a lot of time thinking about the office market. Yeah, it's really two different markets. I was in Napa last week and Silicon Valley still very hybrid, probably needs a lot less space. At the same time, there's also more people that can work remotely in different parts of the country that may need uh, smaller offices in secondary and tertiary markets. What were the numbers? What's the office market as far as how to take advantage of it over the next few years? You just touched on it. There are some stats out there that actually support the fact that all of the movement from population back into downtown areas, that was actually slowing and in some cities reversing. When the pandemic hit, we were already in the middle of a trend to go back to suburban office. And that's where our focus is. In the Nashville market and even in the Huntsville market, which are the two markets closest to me, the central business districts are healthy, but they're not for office. They've become more entertainment district. The office brand in downtown areas is still a bit weak, but you go outside the city centers into the suburbs in Nashville and most places, there's hardly any vacancy at all. I'll speak for the South. I focus on Southern cities, Atlanta, Birmingham, Nashville, Huntsville, the Tennessee Valley mainly. How do you play that? If you can find a good deal on a suburban office property, maybe it needs some work. Work hard and do that deal. We're heavily focused on trying to find medical office. Medical office was never impacted. In some states, you couldn't go to your doctor pretty quickly. There are lots of office uses that cannot be done remotely. Unless doctors are going to do house calls again, which is unlikely, they're going to have offices and you're going to have to go see your doctor. So medical offices are are huge opportunities and most of them are full and stateful. What our deal is, we're pursuing cash flowing assets. You pay a little bit more, but the predictability and stability of that asset, that's what our investor class is looking for is recurring cash flow and the ability to do that. What I have found is that there's a lot of properties, one of them we've put an LOI out on right now is the visionaries have these, yeah, let's put an office building there, which took a lot of risk, but then they don't know how to write a good lease. There's one that we're in right now. It's a great location, but he had no rent escalators in his leases at all. And now all of a sudden, we're in inflationary times. You could get away with that for about 20 years. You and I are of the age where we remember inflation. We were younger then. 
But a lot of people really haven't thought much about inflation for 20, 25 years because it's just been such a non-issue. I really don't understand anybody who wouldn't put rent escalators in a multi-year lease. All costs continue to go up. The poor landscapers out there are suffering from gas prices and they're all having to go up. And as all of your costs go up and your tenants are going to keep paying the same rent. So there's a lot of opportunities out there from just call it poorly managed assets. They might be great assets. So you got to get in there and suffer, but it might take you two or three years to get all those leases back to a more marketable. And then once you've done that, you can then flip that office building because now you put the leases into a situation that will keep up with any changes. At least the last few years have been much more focused on multifamily. And I've seen the cap rates compress Mm. tremendously into the threes in some cases. And we sold the deal in Phoenix at a 3.75 cap. Um, and now with the rates moving, we're keeping a close eye on where cap rates are going to stabilize. What does the office market look like as far as entry cap rates over the last six months or a year with, with deals you're looking yeah. at now? Last year, they were mostly in the sevens and eights, strangely. We closed our deal at a 7.6 cap. Uh, very pleased with that. Since that time, last six months, everybody, oh, well, people are going back to the office. And again, all real estate's local, but now uh, most office properties are in the five and a half to six and a half range cap rate. I don't think they're going to have time to compress like multifamily did. Interest rates are back up. We uh, got a, a mortgage on the property we closed in January at, for 10 years fixed at 3.25. Of course, we knew interest rates were going up at that time, but we had that lock. My lock is, and I'm feeling pretty good, but is five and a half, where a lot of banks are at six and a half, even seven. I don't think there's any room for cap rates to continue to compress. I would expect multifamily to they would expand a little bit given the market. Big thing a lot of our investors look for, and I assume yours as well, is, is depreciation, especially through the cost segregation. What does office generally look like compared to multifamily as far as uh, doing a cost segregation on, on say, a $100,000 passive investment? What's the range that investors can perhaps expect in depreciation yeah. benefits? That's a great question. That's going to vary depending on the type of office. If you go to one of these glass and steel concrete structures, you're not going to get a lot of cost segregation, maybe 20% of the purchase price. The one we did is 28,000 square feet. Uh, it was mainly uh, stick construction and stuff like that. We're expecting about a 35% of the total purchase price to get allocated to personal property assets. Out of $100,000, they should expect uh, essentially a $35,000 write-off in year one for that. That all depends on how they can use that at their own individual level. But that's that's what they should expect. I think multifamily runs about 40, 42%, if not mistaken. Your markets, I mean, I know Nashville is has been booming for a while. So Nashville and Huntsville, those the those are your target markets? We've defined our target market as what I call the 840-565 corridor. So there's a a loop around southern Nashville, which is I-40, and then there's 565 that goes across northern Alabama. So our focus is in between those two. I think Nashville's overpriced. I think there's too much competition. We like tertiary markets. There's good value, good cash flow, and more stability. We're smack in the middle of Huntsville. The other way referred to is the Tennessee Valley. Spring Hill, Tennessee is definitely part of the Nashville MSA. It's outside of downtown and likes it. Spring Hill is, is where GM put the Saturn plant in 1988. Even when they stopped Saturn, they've continued to build other things. And right now, GM is building their EV factory and their battery plant on that same campus. And they're about to hire about 10,000 more people within two miles of our facility there. It's a 
Spring Hill's not going anywhere. I love the phrase, all real estate is local. I say it all the time. You got to get to know your local market. Unfortunately, mortgage rates are sort of nationalized, but real estate opportunities are local. There are several great cities where there's manufacturing sectors in southern Middle Tennessee and northern Alabama. Huntsville is just booming. It's all but beneficially announced that it will be the center or the base of the new Space Command. There's already been a large military and defense contracting presence there. Toyota Mazda put a new manufacturing plant there and has hired originally 4,000 people, is now hiring 3,000 more. Northern Alabama, to me, a fabulous target opportunity for all kinds of assets. We're pursuing a self-storage project right right now. I got a contract on that. I love self-storage, probably the most recession-resistant asset because if people do need to downsize, they need to... They need a place for yeah. their stuff. And really, if people right. are moving, anytime people are moving, even if they're moving into an area, often clean house, get a different type of right. furniture, but they don't want to throw things out. I love self-storage. Obviously, I assume mostly real estate like me. Do you dabble in any other alternatives or where else do you invest your money, if anything? I got a little money in the market, which frankly, I use it as, as a holding pattern and I keep it in things like Apple. I have not done any crypto. Honestly, I don't understand crypto. It makes me nervous. <laughs> I've always liked real things. I like dirt. I like brick mortar. And I enjoy walking around and talking to the tenants and finding out what's going on. There's a reason it's called real estate because it's real. I don't want to dissuade anybody against uh, crypto. I'm just saying I don't understand it. I've got some friends who've made pretty good money at, in crypto. It's not done so great this year. Real estate's had its ups and downs in the past too. I think that there is a future for crypto. Ultimately, the G7 countries of the world are actually going to end up dominating crypto one way or the other. There's going to be digital currencies, but I think it's probably going to be dominated by them because the governments are the ones that are most at risk from that type of an asset. Have been looking at some ETFs. Yes, I'll have to buy some ETH, I believe, to buy a particular NFT. It's some digital art, which I would have never considered, but this one particularly captured my interest. That's interesting. I think it is a whole brave new world and there's just any number of ways this blockchain technology is going to impact all of our lives, including real estate. I'm fascinated by it. Living down here in Puerto Rico, I'm surrounded by a lot of Bitcoin maximalists, decentralized right. finance. That's the other thing. There's the NFTs, but then there's also the entire DeFi market. Those that are building it are trying to build it into an alternative financial system. You saw some major issues recently where one of the stable coins collapsed but a number of other ones that survive. The crazy thing is they even have certain coins that could actually track stocks. I think there's a protocol called Mirror where you could actually buy synthetic Apple stock using using crypto and there's even some options available. Yeah, at the same time, it's very much not regulated. I've even seen some of the pump and dump scams from the 80s happening with some of these altcoins here. It's the Wild West. Keeping an eye on it, your fear and I, relative lack of understanding. I know probably just enough to be dangerous. I wouldn't classify it as fear. I just say one of the things I've learned is invest in things you know and understand. Kind of like my golf game, I've never put the time into it to understand. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> yeah, I'm not good at golf because I've never put the time into it. Again, I'm not saying it's evil or bad. I just say it's not something that I do. I'll find the time at the appropriate time. But I'm not surprised that there's scams. One of my sons showed me this thing. He was trying to sell a laptop on Venmo the other day, and he got this email back saying that you need to send the seller back $350. And he's like, I haven't even got his money yet. 
this is the same old scam from 30 years ago, just applied to the new digital platforms. There's nothing new under the sun. Those of us that have had some success too, we don't need home runs anymore. You mentioned cash flowing asset, 80 to 90% of what I do, I just focus on principal protection and cash yep. flow. I don't right. need the 100x return and a little bit of money in venture. If you venture funds, because if you're going to do venture, you really should be in 20 different projects. Because 19 of them are going to really fail. Need diversification. What advice do you have for people just getting started into alternative investments? First, I take issue with applying real estate to with a term called alternative investments. Wall Street has done a great job of calling real estate alternative. I like to refer to real estate as the original investment. It's been around since the beginning of time. It's my little soapbox. For people getting started, first decide how you want to be involved. Sometimes it's hard to know. Do you want to be on the capital raising side or do you want to do like I do? I enjoy managing the properties. And I guess I would call that the asset management. We do work with property managers from time to time, depending on the property. But I enjoy running the asset. And if that's something that you enjoy, get involved in that side. But if you're more salesy and you could get involved in the capital raising side, then follow Jack and I and, and join RaiseMasters and learn what that's all about. Real estate's not complicated. It's not a very difficult business to learn. And if you've got the skills to raise capital, you can apply that to almost any industry out there. First, understand what really interests you. I would say start small because you can get the same amount of education on a small transaction than you can a big transaction, although your mistakes will be small. And never, ever question the benefits of actual equity in the asset. <laughs> the hard lesson learned. The late 2000s, everything's just been going up since 2001. And why would they turn around? Well, they do. And a lot of times for reasons outside of your control and for nothing that you did. That's great stuff. How do we get a hold of you? Best way to get a hold of me is harvardgracecapital.com. It's all spelled out. There you can find a link to my Calendly. I would love to talk with anybody who would like to have a conversation. I can talk real estate and investments all day long. You're welcome to go out there and grab some time. My email's there. My phone number's there. That's the best way to get me. Stuart, really great conversation. Thank you again for coming on the show. Really great stuff. I'm going to keep this that real estate's not an alternative asset. It's the original (laughs) asset. I like that a lot. Thanks again for being on the show and uh, encourage everyone to please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, your platform of choice. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up. Thanks again for listening to the show, everybody. Thank you, Jack. That's all for this episode of Alternative Investor Mastermind. Now that you know the many alternative opportunities out there all up for the taking, you can finally become ultra-connected and ultra-wealthy. Get more valuable advice from the experts by subscribing to the show at alternativeinvestormastermind.com. Become a winner in the world of passive investing today in alternative investment strategies. Thank you for joining us. Until next time.